You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 297, March to Yorktown. Now, we last left the Maine Continental Army under George Washington in episode 290. General Washington and General Rochambeau discussed their options for the 1781 fighting season during the spring. Washington wanted to attack New York City and force the main British army under General Clinton to surrender. Rochambeau wanted to go to Virginia and take out the British Southern Army under General Cornwallis. Washington's goal would have been a more decisive way to end the war. However, the chances of taking New York seemed much lower. Washington convinced Rochambeau to probe the defenses in northern Manhattan, but those probes only confirmed Rochambeau's belief that they could not take the British there. In August of 1781, Washington received confirmation that the French fleet under Admiral de Grasse was sailing for Virginia. Washington gave up his plans for New York and conceded that he was going to have to follow the French strategy. Washington had already deployed General Lafayette to Virginia to prevent the British from occupying Richmond. The British forces ended up taking a defensive posture along the Chesapeake coast, despite having a larger army created by the combination of armies that came down from New York under General William Phillips and the army from General Cornwallis that moved up from South Carolina. Washington received confirmation from Lafayette that the British Army was building a defensive position at Yorktown. Washington personally knew the area well. In 1777, Virginia General Thomas Nelson had proposed building a monitoring station at Yorktown to track British ships coming and going from the Chesapeake. Washington advised against that, saying that the narrow Yorktown Peninsula could easily be cut off by land and trap any soldiers that were holding that position. Now, in 1781, his enemy was taking that same position. Washington ordered Lafayette to prevent Cornwallis from gaining any path where he might march by land back down to the Carolinas. Now, Lafayette didn't have enough men to attack Cornwallis's army successfully, but he could build up defenses that would likely keep the enemy where they were. Washington's army, in August, only had a few thousand Continentals. None of the states had raised their quotas for the 1781 fighting season, so he really had little more than the number that had survived on the winter encampments from the prior year. He was also going to have to leave some portion of his army around New York so that the main British army under Clinton did not go on the offensive. So even if you combined Washington's army with the Continentals already in Virginia, the British force under Cornwallis would probably still outnumber them by nearly two to one. On top of that, Washington was struggling more than ever to feed and supply his army. The states had pretty much gotten tired of supporting the army and refused to come up with the necessary money and supplies 
to keep even a small army in the field. To get even his small army into fighting condition, Washington needed more of everything. Unfortunately, Colonel John Lawrence had been successful in his efforts to get the King of France to contribute more to the cause. In June of 1781, Lawrence sailed into Boston with arms and equipment to resupply Washington's army. This had been made possible through a large gift of cash from the King of France. In addition to that, however, Washington needed money to pay his soldiers. The Continentals were promised monthly pay. A private was entitled to $6.67 a month. Of course, with inflation, that money was literally not worth the paper it was written on. A month's pay would probably have the buying power of less than one cent's worth of specie, that is, gold or silver. To add to the insult, Congress had not even bothered to supply the paper money to pay the soldiers for many months. Remember, Washington had begun 1781 with a mutiny because his men were not getting what they were promised. His men rightfully felt forgotten and neglected by the rest of the country. To forestall mutinies or desertions during this critical campaign, Washington wrote two letters to Robert Morris in August. Morris was the superintendent of finance for the Continental Congress. Washington pleaded with him to come up with one month's pay for the soldiers in specie to help with morale. One of his letters reads in part, I quote, I must entreat you, if possible, to procure one month's pay in specie for the detachment which I have under my command. Part of those troops have not been paid anything for a very long time past, and have upon several occasions shown marks of great discontent. The service they are going upon is disagreeable to the northern regiments, but I make no doubt that a decur of a little hard money will put them in a proper temper. Now, Morris, of course, had no money to give, so he sent letters to the states pleading that they provide money immediately. One of his letters reads in part, quote, The exigencies of the service require immediate attention. We are on the eve of the most active operations, and should they be in any wise retarded by the want of necessary supplies, the most unhappy consequences may follow. Those who may be justly chargeable with neglect will have to answer for it to their country, to their allies, to the present generation, and to all posterity. I hope, entreat, expect, and utmost possible efforts on the part of your state, and I confide in your excellency's prudence and vigor to render those efforts effectual. Despite his need for money, Washington really couldn't wait for it to arrive. He believed that the French fleet was on its way to the Chesapeake and hoped it would arrive in August. He had also received word from the fleet's commander, Admiral de Grasse, that the fleet would only be available until mid-October when it had to return to the West Indies. That meant that Washington had a two-month window to march his army to Virginia and defeat the British. Washington moved his Continental Army into New Jersey in late August. With him was the French army under General Rochambeau that numbered about 5,000 men. So Rochambeau's French army was about twice the size of the Continental Army that Washington was leading. The armies first marched north to a point where they could cross the Hudson River into New Jersey. They moved down the eastern coast of the state, bringing boats with them in hopes of convincing the British in New York 
that they planned a river crossing into New York and attack the city. The ruse did not last long since they had to eventually march west toward Pennsylvania. By the end of August, the armies were at Princeton. They rested there for a couple of days, arriving in Trenton on September 2nd. There, the armies crossed the Delaware River into Pennsylvania. When they reached Philadelphia, the army set up camp in an unpopulated area west of town. This was along the eastern bank of the Schuylkill River that covered vacant farmland up to about where Philadelphia City Hall sits today. The army paused there for a few days, marching down Market Street for a grand review by Congress and the people of Philadelphia. Also, while in the city, Washington hoped to collect some of the money he needed to pay for the Army's travel expenses and pay his soldiers. As usual, Congress had nothing. Robert Morris ended up going around to his wealthier friends in the city, borrowing on his own personal credit. He had managed to scrape together about $30,000, which would help cover some of the costs of moving the Army, but not enough to issue any pay. Morris even managed to borrow $2,000 in specie from General Rochambeau. This probably came out of the French Army's payroll, and Morris had to promise to repay it by October 1st. Morris's efforts were also aided by the arrival of Colonel Lorenz in late August with some of the money that had been provided by the King of France. So, in effect, this was a French campaign. The French Army under Rochambeau, as I said, was twice as large as the Continental Army. France was also paying for almost all the Continental Army's expenses. And to have any hope of success, these combined armies had to unite with the French fleet under Admiral de Grasse. The British Army in Yorktown was, at this point, being kept in place by an army under General Lafayette. On Tuesday, September 4th, Washington attended a dinner in Philadelphia hosted by the French minister, Luzerne. The following morning, the armies began marching for Head of Elk, Maryland. At least part of the French army moved down the Delaware River by ship, but the limits of ships and money forced the Continentals to walk. Just after leaving Philadelphia, Washington received news that Admiral de Grasse had reached the Chesapeake. As Washington had feared, his small army did see a number of desertions on the march. Morale remained low. At his arrival at Head of Elk, Washington received some good news. General Rochambeau had written to Admiral de Grasse months earlier that the campaign was in desperate need of cash. De Grasse convinced Spanish officials in Havana, Cuba, to provide a loan of 500,000 Spanish pesos, which de Grasse carried to America. Spain also agreed to use its navy to protect French merchant vessels in the West Indies, allowing de Grasse to take more ships with him to Virginia. Spanish officials had to scramble to collect the massive amounts of cash. Although the Spanish Empire literally pulled tons of gold and silver out of its mines in Latin America each year, it did not keep piles of specie on hand in one place. The Spanish minister in Havana, Don Francisco Saavedra, worked with officials all across the Spanish Empire, including heavy reliance with Bernardo de Galvez in New Orleans, to come up with the money. Saavedra was supposed to get the money from mines in Mexico, but the ships had not arrived by the time the French fleet was ready to leave. The Spanish minister had to call on the people of Havana to lend the money until the treasure ships arrived from Mexico. The people of Havana quickly responded, allowing the government to raise the necessary cash 
in just six hours. The French fleet departed with the needed money and sailed for Virginia. Confident that he would have the cash necessary to complete the campaign, Washington paused at Head of Elk to do something he had never done before. Pay his soldiers for a full month's pay in hard money. Sergeant Joseph Plum Martin, who had been with the Army since 1776, later wrote about the incident at Head of Elk. Quote, Each of us received a month's pay in specie, borrowed, as I was informed by our French officers, from the French officers in the French Army. This was the first that could be called money, which we had received as wages since the year 76, or that we ever did receive till the close of the war, or indeed ever after, as wages. Another soldier, John Hudson, also wrote, quote, I received the only pay I ever drew for my services during the war, being six French crowns, which were part of what Robert Morris borrowed on his own credit from the French commander to supply the most urgent necessities of the soldiers. My comrades received the same amount. The money did wonders for morale. The bad news at Head of Elk was that there were not nearly enough ships to transport the army to Virginia. About a thousand of the soldiers boarded ships. The other 6,500 or so continued to march overland. The army made its way to Baltimore, where it once again was received happily by the residents of the town. Then, Washington had another wartime first. On September 8th, he left while much of his army was still marching to Baltimore. He rode to his home in Mount Vernon. This was the first time he had seen his estate since he rode off to the Second Continental Congress in early 1775. Washington brought with him several of his aides, as well as a few top French officers, including General Rochambeau. During the years he had been away, Washington had instructed a great many changes to be made to Mount Vernon and its grounds. So this was the first time he actually got to see a much different estate that he had left six years earlier. But he didn't spend a lot of time talking about the changes or much of anything about home. He and the other leaders spent a couple of days at the plantation working out some logistical details for the remainder of the campaign. On the morning of September 12th, the group left Mount Vernon and headed for Williamsburg. A week later, Generals Rochambeau and Washington boarded Admiral de Grasse's flagship to discuss their military plans. Although the leaders had arrived, the armies were still on their way. Some of them were still waiting for ships at Head of Elk. Others were still marching to Baltimore. Part of the army was able to board ships at Baltimore, but the French did not believe the available ships were seaworthy and opted to continue marching overland. Some of the transport ships arrived at the mouth of the York River on September 22nd, and many of the other ships continued to arrive over the following days. Now there, the combined armies received more reinforcements. In addition to ships and money, the Admiral de Grasse had brought with him another 3,300 French soldiers to join the fight. Washington also made contact with several thousand Continental soldiers and militia that were already in Virginia under the command of Generals Lafayette, Anthony Wayne, and the Baron von Steuben. And as I said, the rest of his army would continue to trickle in over the next few weeks. In all, it took about six weeks from the time in mid-August when the French and American armies began their march from New York until all of them finally arrived in Williamsburg ready to begin battle in late September. During this time, the British command seemed unconcerned. 
General Clinton continued to focus on his own position in New York. In mid-July, Admiral Graves had taken much of the British fleet at New York and sailed off in search of a French supply fleet that intelligence reported might be headed to New England. So Clinton was focused during that time on concerns about being without protection of the Navy for nearly a month. London had never really intended Graves to be the commander of the British Navy. The naval commander in North America, Admiral Arbuthnot, had resigned a few weeks earlier and sailed for London. Officials in London deployed Admiral Robert Digby to replace him. But Arbuthnot was gone, and Digby had not yet arrived, so Graves served as the temporary commander of the British fleet. The British received reports that the French fleet under de Grasse might be headed for New York. Local spies told them that General Washington was focused on efforts to retake New York as well. Now, although Washington had given up on this idea by mid-August, his musings about taking over New York continued over the summer, and they trickled in as intelligence reports to General Clinton. Now, when the British fleet returned to New York on August 16th, Clinton wrote to Admiral Graves suggesting an attack on the very small French presence that remained in Newport, Rhode Island. Clinton had received intelligence that the fleet under de Grasse might be headed for Newport and thought that the British fleet might seize the town again before de Grasse arrived. Around the same time, the French and American armies left New York to begin their march across New Jersey. By late August, Clinton was receiving intelligence reports telling him that the army was marching toward Baltimore. Several officers under Clinton argued that the British should move into New Jersey and chase down these enemy armies while they were on the march. Clinton dismissed these proposals, fearing the marches were a ruse to draw him out of Manhattan so that the enemy could attack the city while the bulk of the British army was in New Jersey. Clinton still believed that Washington could not seriously hope to march to Yorktown. The British Navy could defeat the fleet under de Grasse, the combined French and British armies did not have the overwhelming force to take Cornwallis's defenses, and the British could evacuate by sea in the event of an unlikely military defeat there. All of these beliefs convinced Clinton that Washington's march was just an attempt to draw the British into New Jersey and that the plans to go all the way to Virginia was completely a ruse. A small British fleet under Admiral Samuel Hood had also sailed up from the West Indies, and found no real enemy naval presence in the Chesapeake. Hood, however, knew that de Grasse was on his way, and he was convinced that the French fleet might be able to control the waters around Yorktown. So Hood continued on and arrived in New York at the end of August, but found General Clinton and Admiral Graves unconcerned about any possible attack on the British Southern Army at Yorktown. Graves was still awaiting the repair of several ships, Clinton was still concerned that de Grasse might target New York and that the enemy's march to the south was just a ruse. Similarly, in late August, General Cornwallis remained unconcerned. His armies outnumbered the enemy. Cornwallis had a force under his command of between 7,000 and 8,000 soldiers. The army he faced, led by Lafayette, Anthony Wayne, and Baron von Steuben, numbered less than 2,000. That could grow for short periods with the use of local militia, but prior experience with the Virginia militia had proven that they were less than formidable. Because General Clinton did not believe that Washington and Rochambeau were really headed for Yorktown, he didn't even bother to warn Cornwallis of the approaching armies. 
It was only after the arrival of the French fleet that Cornwallis saw his opportunity for an escape by sea to be somewhat limited, and that could only happen if the British fleet could take out the French fleet. At this time, in late August, Cornwallis had the numbers to defeat the enemy forces that were currently arrayed against him. At the very least, he could have marched out and defeated the smaller continental force that was against him before the larger combined force under Washington and Rochambeau arrived. That was the strategy that Colonel Bannister Tarleton was urging. But since Cornwallis was not aware of their imminent arrival, he remained contentedly behind his defensive lines at Yorktown. Even after Cornwallis learned in late September that a larger combined and French continental army was assembling against him, he refused to attack. According to his later claims, he expected General Clinton to provide reinforcements before he would engage with the enemy. Of course, those reinforcements would almost certainly have to arrive by sea in order to arrive in time to be of any use. That meant that the British fleet would have to defeat the French fleet for control of the Chesapeake. Next week, we'll see how that turns out when the British and French fleets do battle for control of the Chesapeake. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show, part of the Airwave Media Network. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, John Celentano, Michael Mulhern, and the Sons of the American Revolution. Be sure to check out the Sons of the American Revolution podcast at fastfunhistory.com. I also want to thank Robert Morris Circle supporters, Lee Seam and TJ Walker, and welcome our newest member of the Robert Morris Circle, Chasen Harrison. Thanks also to Richard Schulman for a one-time gift via PayPal. I really appreciate everyone who can help support this podcast. This week's episode covers the march from New York to Yorktown. I'm going to cover the Yorktown campaign over a series of episodes over the next few weeks. This is the last major campaign of the war, and I do want to give it the attention it deserves. Uh, I talk about the march starting in New York, but many sources will say that the march actually started in Newport, Rhode Island. That's where the French army under Rochambeau had been for a year. The French army marched first to New York, that's where it met up with Washington's Continental Army, then the combined armies began their march from New York. One of the things I found difficult to stress enough in the main episode was just how hobbled the Continental Army was by finances. The army could barely feed and clothe its soldiers in camp, let alone finance a major campaign. 
Washington worried at times that the war would be lost simply because the states did not have the will to continue paying for the war. This seemed extremely short-sighted. One reason that many people at the time believed that monarchies were better than democracies was that kings had more will to push through those hard times to reach a better longer-term goal. The common people who had to pay for the war tended to look more only at the short-term benefit of lower taxes and not at the long-term consequences for national policy. Unfortunately, France and Spain really came through. I've heard comments at time that Spain was not as important as France to the cause, and I've said that myself. It is true that Spain never fully dedicated itself to the American cause by providing troops and working directly with the Continental Congress, but its indirect supply of money, particularly for this critical campaign, was very, very important to the campaign's success. And of course, Spain gave other indirect benefits by distracting a lot of British troops in other parts of the world with their own struggles. Now, there are several good books that cover the Yorktown campaign, some of which I've already recommended, and a few more that I'm going to recommend in the coming weeks. This week, I want to recommend The Campaign That Won America, The Story of Yorktown, by Burke Davis. The book starts in the summer of 1781 with the march from New York and takes us through the surrender that fall. It covers just those few months in just under 300 pages, not counting notes and index. So lots of good information. The author, Burke Davis, is probably best known for his books about the Civil War, but he also wrote a number of books about the Revolution as well. And The Campaign That Won America is one of them. The book was first published in 1979, so lots of used copies floating around out there. You can also borrow a copy on archive.org. The author, Davis, passed away in 2006. My online recommendation is a website of an organization that's devoted specifically to the march to Yorktown. The Washington Rochambeau Revolutionary Route Association was organized in 1999 to focus on the route taken by the Allied armies to Yorktown. The group's website is w3r-us.org. It contains lots of great resources about the march and about the Franco-American alliance. If interested, go to their site, w3r-us.org. As always, I've included the website link on my blog and website. My question this week asks, if George Washington was really born on February 11th, why do we celebrate his birthday on February 22nd? Well, this is an especially timely question since we are coming up on Washington's birthday. On February 22nd, 2024, the general would have been 292 years old. We remember Washington's birthday as February 22nd, 1732. Yet, when he was born, his birth was listed as February 11th, 1731-2. To get to the bottom of this question, we actually have to go back to ancient Rome. The Romans were trying to establish a calendar that was based on the Earth's orbit around the Sun, which is roughly 365.25 days. They established a calendar, which consisted of 365 days, and then every four years they added a 366th day, what we call a leap year. This calendar became known as the Julian calendar because it was adopted during the reign of Julius Caesar. Now, the key word in my explanation I just gave is the word roughly. 
the Earth orbit is actually not 365.25 days, it's 365.2422 days. Now that tiny fraction of a day meant that the calendar ended up being off by one day for every 129 years. It didn't make a big deal until the centuries passed along, and then the calendars that everyone was using were several days off from the sun's measurements. In the 16th century, the Catholic Church became concerned about this disparity because the vernal equinox, which was used to calculate the date of Easter, was more than a week different from where it should have been based on the location of the sun. The result was that in 1582, the Church made some changes to the Julian calendar. So, instead of there being a leap year every four years, every 100 years, they would skip that leap year for that fourth year. And then every fourth century, that exception to the exception where they would skip the leap year for the hundredth year, they would add it back in. So I know that gets really confusing, but basically every four years is a leap year. The years ending in zero, zero should be leap years, but they're not unless those years are divisible by four. So 1700, 1800, and 1900 all should have been leap years, but they skipped the leap year. In the year 2000, they kept the leap year in anyway. I know that's really confusing, but that's what they had to do so that the drift doesn't keep happening over the centuries. All of these corrections helped put the calendar in balance with the sun over time. Because this new calendar was adopted under Pope Gregory XIII, it became known as the Gregorian calendar. Now, of course, like any new change, Lots of people didn't want to make that change because it just was confusing to actually make it. Protestant countries seemed especially reluctant to adopt the new calendar and continued to use the Julian calendar. Britain and its colonies were still using the Julian calendar when Washington was born. In 1752, when Washington was about 20 years old, Britain finally adopted the Gregorian calendar, and it had to skip 11 days to sync up with the new calendar. So it was proclaimed that the day after September 2nd, 1752, would be September 14th, 1752. George Washington, like most people, adjusted his birthday to show his birth based on the newly adopted Gregorian calendar. But why does his birth year show up as 1731-2 instead of just 1732? Under the old Julian calendar, the new year began in March, not January. We still have that fact left over in our month names, if you think about it. September, October, November, and December derive their names from being months 7 through 10. September 7, October 8, you get it? In fact, those months are months 9 through 12 in our modern calendar. The reason they have those names is because March used to be the first month and February used to be the 12th month of the year. That's also why the leap year gets added in February, the last month of the old calendar year. So because Washington was born in February, under the old Julian calendar, he would have still been born in 1731, but under the new Gregorian calendar, it was 1732. The fact that this birth year was written as 1 slash 2 recognized that both calendars were in use by different people, and writing it that way was designed to avoid any confusion about what calendar was actually being used to record his birth year. And once the transition to the Gregorian calendar was complete, Washington recognized his birth date, as I said, 
as February 22, 1732, under the Gregorian calendar. That's the date we would celebrate if we didn't completely ignore all of what I just said and move his birthday to the nearest Monday that we feel like in February. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. <laughs>